It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Freddie. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the fallout of the Ford report. And you ask us, what's the point of Labour if it doesn't represent organised labour? So the Tory leadership election rumbles on and uh, it has been uh, dominating the podcast for a number of episodes now. But there is a lot going on in Labour, so I'm glad that we've got the time to to focus on them. First of all, the Ford report came out and um, it made for quite damning reading for pretty much everyone. Rachel, do you want to take us through what the main findings were? Yes. So this is a a report which covered the period during Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and how the party handled anti-Semitism and the so-called Labour Leaks report, which was a report which was leaked, which contained a lot of leaked WhatsApps. (laughs) Was that in April 2020? That was was sort of just as, I remember just as the pandemic was was hitting. Yeah. Yeah. And that came out on the back of some of the EHRC stuff, which was being investigated at the time. So it found basically that the party's handling of anti-Semitism was disrupted by factionalism on both sides, so from from the left and from the right. And they found that it also undermined the democratic process and they failed the electorate as a result as an entire party. It also went into other areas which there's been claims on the left that the right of the party during the 2017 general election tried to completely throw the election and that Martin Ford QC found that 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 wasn't the case, but it was the case that they had set up a secret operation and were putting money into certain seats. Uh, It's it's been a mess and it covers uh, a period that's long in history now, Mm. but which has been important in terms of the party has not been united now for a very long time because of just the wars that took place during during this period. Yeah, and what I find quite sort of amusing about this report and it is quite impressive the way that they've they've done it because it's been embraced as a sort of nuanced and balanced kind of investigation by both sides which you know you wouldn't necessarily expect from an investigation like this and let's not forget that this inquiry was actually commissioned by Keir Starmer and I think I think I'm kind of like those people who said it's done done, done a service to the party I kind, I'm kind of persuaded by that because I think there's a lot of agreement from both people on the left and from people on the right I think Keir Starmer's also come in for quite a lot of criticism after it's been published because there's been no 
full response from him. You know, there's been no communication to members saying these are issues that we recognise. We been no apology to to Diane Abbott, for example, who the report found was te- treated in a discriminatory way within the senior management team WhatsApps at the time. I think there are some people waiting still for some kind of response from the leader as to just recognise some of the things that were said in the report, really. Mm, because P- MPs like her and other MPs of colour and female MPs as well will probably feel vindicated by some of the quite damning findings in this report, which actually does warn about a hierarchy of racism. Yeah. I mean, it does corroborate the EHRC he's finding that there was political interference from the leadership into yeah. the handling of anti-Semitism complaints. But it does also say that anti-Semitism as an issue was used as a factional weapon by critics of Jeremy Corbyn, which is something that uh, many of his detractors were saying at the time, not just to underplay it, but also to express frustration about the factionalism that they felt was holding back their, their man. Yeah, and I think I think although Keir Starmer's kind of made a public statement, which was kind of along the lines of this covers a period in which the party was out of control and Keir Starmer's now in control, I, I don't think that's much comfort to people who are actually within the party itself who kind of feel there's... You know, some, there are some parts of it that feel unresolved. Mm. And, and the other sort of, and you touched on it here, the other central sort of finding in this report was that sort of party HQ staff officials, you could say they were sort of part of the brownite right of the party, sort of remnants of, of former regimes who didn't like the fact that Jeremy Corbyn was leader. They were found to have been covertly running their own funds towards anti-Corbyn. MPs in their seats and uh, and that could have been at the expense of potentially sort of resourcing winnable or potentially winnable Tory seats and Rory Scothorn one of our writers has written a really good piece about this and the sort of democratic gap that there is there between party officials and the leadership and each of their electoral strategies and that was you know some on the left would say that that affected the outcome of the 2017 general election the report the Ford report says that it thinks that's quite unlikely but you know could it have done? Well I think to really understand the findings of the report you have to recognise how the Labour Party is structured so as the report makes clear the Labour HQ sort of acts as the civil service for the leadership. They are there to help them with the administration, to manage the membership, to organise the campaigning, these sorts of things. And as with the civil service, you normally expect them to be impartial and to implement the will of the government in that case, or uh, the leader of the opposition in the case of Labour. So once you put it into that context, you can sort of see the impact it might have on whether Labour can win the election or not. As you rightly said, Anish, the Ford report doesn't come down either way, whether it massively influenced the election uh, results or not. And it's, of course, hard to make that judgment. But if a party is that dysfunctional in the way that it communicates to one another, if it has that low level of trust between the senior management and then the senior political side of things, you're going to have a less focused, less reactive, less organised approach to the election. And I think, you know, from the outside, before we had all these reports following the 2017 election, that is what we saw. Mm. And whether or not it would have affected the outcome, it of course affected the spirit within the party of trying to fight that election. I mean, it would have been difficult with one side wanting to pursue this very active, you could call it positive, aggressive strategy of trying to win those marginal seats. And the other side being more defensive and cautious and saying we need to consolidate the vulnerable seats that we have because of the polling that they were receiving at yeah. the time. Just on that, I think that's interesting because at the start of the campaign, both sides agreed that they should pursue a more defensive strategy. It's just that the polling changed. Mm. And so you had Labour HQ going, OK, yeah, we recognise that we now need to change policy. But 
it's a bit too late. We've already allocated funding. We've already organised volunteers and what have you. And then you had the leader of the opposition's team saying, well, actually, no, we could do better now. We need to try and go for the win, in part because of, I was about to say Thatcher's, but, but Theresa May's uh, <laughs> really, really poor campaign. And that that wasn't that foreseeable. We've got to remember at the start of the 2017 general election campaign, it looked as if the Conservatives were going to get a huge majority. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> I do remember that. Yeah. Those few weeks. And at the time, I mean, at the time, I don't know if you remember this, Rachel, at the Mirror, but um, it felt almost like you were covering different parties. Yeah. Uh, so I did a lot on Momentum, and they had quite a sort of nifty little my nearest marginal app thing where you could type in your postcode, and then you'd get sort of carpooled to wherever they thought there was a seat close by that they could win, and they did actually win some seats that the Labour Party proper mm. believe were unwinnable, like Croydon Central, for example. And there is this argument on the left that if they sort of ran a more attacking campaign to try and win those seats, like. Oxbridge and South Ryslip, the, yeah, the Holy example. Grail, uh, <laughs> Chingford and Woodford Green, Southampton Itchen, Pudsey, these seats that they sort of narrowly failed to win from the Tories because they weren't putting those those resources out there. Uh, yes, I think that's right. But what, what I think is kind of the most serious finding in the report is that the party just failed overall to take anti-Semitism seriously because it was being used as a factional weapon mm. by, by both sides. And I think that's the most damning thing about you know the so-called party of equality you know that they can't get themselves together enough to deal with what the report acknowledges was a very serious problem for the party for its jewish members and for jewish people more more widely so i think i think that's the kind of most serious thing in the report that i thought that came out of it and and how much has that been resolved because obviously Keir Starmer is often championed by his supporters as someone who has managed to sort of purge that dark part of yeah. the Corbyn leadership? Well, it says it's it, it sort of praises some of the reforms that were taken in at the party conference last year, but says they could go much further and that it's still not as functional as they'd like. And I imagine the amount of cutbacks they've had to make because of just how skint they are as a party probably hasn't helped either. But yeah, I do think there are further reforms that, mm. that the leader could put in place. Yeah, mm. I think that the money point is really important because all these battles that they've had over the past six years or so have cost huge amounts of money. I saw one figure the other day, but they're now spending, you know, they've spent £2 million on it, I think it was for a year, but they've normally just spent 200000 It's massively impacted their coffers. That makes Keir Starmer's Labour Party much more vulnerable mm-hmm. because you need that amount of money to function, to campaign, to get ready for the general election. Uh, and I, I wrote about this in Morning Call this morning. I don't think you're going to see the same level of factionalism under Starmer. You have Labour HQ and uh, the Leader of the Opposition are much more aligned now. So that deals with one of the problems that the Ford report uh, unveiled, even if you are going to get a lot of dissent and dissatisfaction among the left of the party. But this this money problem is really going to come and it's going to keep being a big issue for Starmer. It's something he needs to address. Mm. Yeah, and we'll talk about that a bit in the second part of the podcast where the unions really come into the money problem. Um, but lastly, you know, I mean... What this report basically exposes is the terrible factionalism that sort of uh, wreaked havoc within the party for years. Mm. Has that been resolved? You know, is that still going to cause problems for Starmer's leadership? And, you know, does it define the way that the Labour Party sort of behaves? I mean, you said that Diane Abbott hasn't had an apology for that racism. Well, well, that's the thing. And that kind of lack of 
just a statement to all members saying we recognise this in the port. This is how we see it internally. You know, it's all very well making a statement mm. to the media saying, you know, we take it very seriously. I'm the man in charge. But then it, that's a very different thing to say to your own. I recognise this report, which I commissioned, has been published. Here's what it found. Here's what we're dealing with. That kind of hasn't happened. I, I do think it would tend to suggest that things are still being seen through a factional lens if they can't apologise to Diane Abbott after the way she was treated. Mm. But I don't know if it's just the case that there are still some legal problems and they're not at a place where they're able to tie it all off just yet. But yeah, I think there is still factionalism in the party. I mean, I mean, going forward now, what happens is there are more than 100 recommendations for, off the back of the report, which will go to the National Executive Committee before the next party conference. So it'll be discussed again. And from what I hear from everyone who was at NEC at the last one, where, when it was discussed, it was quite a, a mature and, and a helpful discussion for everybody. So you kind of hope that they they will get to a better place on it eventually. Well, I've, I'm sure Kia Starmer hopes as much anyway. <laughs> Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical, and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search... Audio long reads from the New Statesman, wherever you get your podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Rachel, you didn't join in there. You looked, oh, sorry. <laughs> you it's the obligatory thing. No, no, I was, I was trying to think what to say. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, start again. <laughs> We're leaving it in. I'm not doing it again. <laughs> it's only her second. Is it your second podcast? Your third? It's my second. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. So that's fine. You're forgiven. I mean, Stephen used to not do it after like... 
five years. So. <laughs> so the question we've got today is from Marcus. Thanks so much for sending one in. He says, hi, lovely NS podcast team, which is nice. What's the point of the Labour Party when they don't represent organised labour? OK, so I think that he is alluding to the latest row within the Labour Party, which is the sacking of Shadow Transport Minister Sam Tarry from the front bench after he joined railway strikers picketing in Euston. The leader's office say that it wasn't because he joined the picket line, but there's a bit of a grey area there. What, mm. what are they actually saying? So a couple of days before... Keir Starmer had kind of made a public statement saying governments don't join picket lines, we're a government in waiting type of thing. And he'd put an edict out when the strikes first took place a month or so ago now saying front benches, you can't join the picket lines. Sam Terry gave an interview to both Good Morning Britain yesterday and Sky News in which he, first of all, promoted himself to Shadow Transport Secretary. <laughs> and he... <laughs> I mean, he, <laughs> I mean... Ambitious. You know. <laughs> when you're on the way out of your job, you need to go <laughs> <Yeah>. rogue. <laughs> and he also kind of made up a policy which was that he thought workers should should be getting above inflation pay rises um, because everything else amounts to a pay cut. Mm-hmm. And he also, I am told, did not speak to the rest of the team about giving the broadcast interview all of which is not what you would expect a frontbencher of any party to do. So I think a lot of people would say that put the leader of the party in a very difficult position if he was to retain any authority. I mean, I can understand a lot of the points that say this is the party of Labour joining a Labour strike. However, I don't know how how you as a leader would be able to retain authority if if your frontbenchers just flout all of the rules that they're supposed to keep to under collective responsibility Mm. and there's a a background to it as well in that Sam Terry is facing potential deselection in his Ilford South constituency as the deselection as the Labour candidate Mm. and he's been quite frustrated with how that's been carried out he's made some claims that there's been all kinds of dodgy goings on as part of the selection race like voter fraud yeah yeah quite quite serious allegations that's kind of some of the background so there's a there's a problem between the leader and this Sam Terry as well. It may not entirely just be about the strikes. Yes. What I'm hearing is, and actually we should probably explain this to our listeners, but Sam Terry is sort of seen as on the left of the party. Yeah. He worked for the TSSA yeah. union for, I think, seven or so years yeah. before becoming an MP. And from what I hear, he is frustrated because he's not getting that backing from the leadership over this the trigger ballot that he's facing from his constituency party. And so there is a bit of tension there between him and sort of the party machine already. Yeah. So it may be that, and you know, I haven't heard this uh, sort of explicitly, but it may be that he felt that he could go and join the picket line and say that he thought that people should get pay in line with inflation or above inflation and sort of uh, break the party line on that because he was already feeling a little bit cheesed off with how he's being treated by his by his masters. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I hear that he's, 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 he's prepared to mount a legal challenge and that he's got a lot of backing from the unions in terms of cash for for doing that Mm. but yeah I I just I think I'd go back to the point that I don't know how he would have been able to stay and for Keir Starmer not to have been a bit of a joke yeah, because he didn't discipline any of the other shadow front benches who had originally broken his instruction not to go and join picketers, had he? So he's yeah. he's trying to make a distinction here by saying, well, it's because he broke the party line. What is the party line on 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 sort well, of striking Well, it's reportedly that they would leave it up to the government and the unions to come to a decision. 
So okay. they're sort of not got an explicit. And this that's in order for them not to have to put a price on it. And exactly, it, yeah. yeah. They don't want to set an incomes policy on what you should have. and So they're, they're trying to, you know, leave it up to the government, which I think worked quite well in the past, but is working less so now. I think I, I agree with what we've mostly said about Starmer being almost forced to have to do this, given that he was so explicit in uh, about front benches joining the picket line. But there is a broader point I hear about whether Starmer can connect with those voters and with the current theme of cost of living with solidarity in a way that he did during his 2019 leadership campaign. That is why many people on the left are so angry with him because they think that he's abandoned all the pledges that he made during his campaign. Now, of course, that's still around. I, of course, I don't think Sam Tarry's sacking is going to bring down Keir Starmer, but if he doesn't address this issue about having sufficient radical policies for the current climate, then that that means that he's not going to be able to inspire his party, he's not going to be able to inspire the public. The timing of it is really, really difficult for Keir Starmer in that we're looking at an entire summer of strikes, really. Mm. And some of these will be union members going on strike for, for unions like Unite or GMB, yes. which is kind of like Starmer ag- agnostic or kind of... St- Pro Starmer, but then there are others like health workers, Unison. That's mm-hmm. Keir Starmer's power base. Yeah, and if he starts to clash with like Usdor, Unison, all these people that helped him win the leadership, then he could get to a really difficult position very quickly before party conference. Mm-hmm. And support for strikes is higher than it's ever been. Yeah. For, well, for for many many years, higher than it's been because. Because every every day you open a newspapers and a story about cost of living and how difficult this winter is going to be for everybody, um, so it's a it's a very different era. And I think some of the rhetoric that the current party is trying to use just doesn't fit with this era, yeah. the one that we're facing. Yeah, and then you've got to remember that this is the summer, and these next six months or so are supposed to be the time where Starmer and his team set out why they should be the next government. So if you're not able to capture the moment and to have sufficient radical policies to get broad support within your party, but also to communicate that you empathise with people's current problems in the cost of living, then you're going to struggle. I think it was quite indicative on Monday in his economy speech where he spoke about growth and to be fair, I mean, productivity is the biggest problem our economy faces at the moment and a long-term sustainable solution to that problem is essential. Yeah. However, is a growth, growth, growth strategy really going to communicate to the people who can't afford their bills at the moment that Labour are going to solve it? And this is part of the problem, I think. So I was speaking to a source who knows the, the union labour link and the tensions at the moment very well. And they were saying that there is this frustration sort of within the unions on this issue that everything is being focus grouped, you know, it's sort of government policy opposition by focus group. I call them the Goldilocks of radicals. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's all sort of trying to make every single statement, every single proposal sort of bomb proof in terms of how it goes down with the public. And that's something that is frustrating the unions because, you know, because of Labour's history with supposed to be the voice of of support for organised labour, as our questioner mentioned in in his question, but also the fact that it doesn't necessarily capture the public mood Mm. anymore. You know, I'm sure Deborah Matheson knows what she's doing and that that, that this is the feedback they're getting of how they should take a line on the strikes. But there's also a naivety there, which is something I've heard from one shadow cabinet member who basically said shows that that Keir Starmer doesn't really understand his party you know he's not been in it very long he's not of the Labour movement and so there's a naivety there of course Labour leaders have always had 
trouble taking a line on strikes going back to Neil Kinnock. But, you know, he's put this stuff about not picketing in writing. And, you know, is that a bit of a political cock up on his part? Yeah, I think. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think we'll see in the next few weeks that he's probably has made a rod for his own back. I think one of the problems is that it wasn't discussed at Shadow Cabinet by all accounts. So it, he didn't get consensus on that point to start ordering people to not go on picket lines with his top team. And I think there are people who are like Angela Rayner, who are, as you say, like of that trade union movement, who are able, therefore, to command it to some degree because yeah. they, they're kind of, they're seen as for them. And it's that person's able to just communicate with people within the movement better. Uh, you know, Starmer was a lawyer. I sometimes don't know if he culturally understands what the Labour Party is. He doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have a gut feeling yes. for, for the Labour movement. And I think... That that's some of what's going wrong here, definitely. Yeah, and that sort of that position on, you know, don't join picket lines. I think someone from the shadow cabinet did describe that to me as just picking a line that would sound good in the Daily Mail and not thinking about what it would mean when nurses start striking, for example, exactly. or teachers or other groups that get more public sympathy and might come up in whatever focus groups they're doing as, you know, quite a, a popular sort of sector to be on the side of. Mm. Yeah, and I don't I don't know if the, the strategy might be to, to change line then, you know, but certainly at the moment, it's going to be a, a huge summer of clashes. Yeah, and, and obviously it's gone down badly with the union general secretaries. There was this tweet from Mick Whelan, who is the ASLEF head, the train drivers union. He said there's now no link worth defending with the Labour Party. So, you know, the extreme end of this could be that some of these unions... I mean, Unite, you know, is probably the most likely one, begin disaffiliating from the Labour Party, which means a huge drain of funds. You know, at the moment, it seems like more threats than actually going through with this, but it could have a huge impact. And, you know, there are rumblings that Unison, like you say, his support base have been really frustrated with the with the line that he's taking. And obviously, you know, it's unlikely that they would pull their support, but there are ways of limiting funding to the Labour Party. Yeah, well, Aslef had a discussion and voted to continue with the affiliation Mm. in you know early summer I think it was so they've already considered that question and dismissed it I don't know if that would change at their conference next year Mm -hmm. now I kind of think probably not because it was quite a quite a strong vote in favour of affiliation but it does start start unions asking that question but I think generally the attitude is you know murder yes divorce never (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a good note to end it on (laughs) And our listeners can read more about the context of this row in your great piece on it this week, Rachel, on the New Statesman website. Thanks so much for for coming on, both of you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Rachel Wearmouth and Freddie Hayward. We're produced by May Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.